0: Welcome to 90 Minutes with Neville Southall. I'm your host James Rogers. We're joined today by Everton Wales footballer, former Everton Wales footballer Neville Southall, and also the members of our podcast team, Keith Mullen, Dave Feely, Simon Hart and Mel Harvey. Now we've also got a special guest today, that's the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. Hi Andy, how are you doing? I'm okay James, how are you? Good mate, I'm good, I'm good. So um, the subject of today's Podcast is poverty. There's more than eleven million people in the UK living in, po- in poverty. It's one of the toughest issues in society. So Neville, this is a this is a something that you care very deeply about, isn't it? Do you want to talk to us a little bit about kind of, you know, what the work that you've been doing around poverty and your, your Twitter account and, and everything else that you're involved in?
1: Yeah, I look. I don't. I think it's an unfair country. Whether you live in Wales, Scotland, Ireland, or England, I think it's a it's an unbalanced society. I think we need to get back to having the fairer society where, where people get their basic needs. And at the moment, if you're choosing between an you old know, sanitary products, toothpaste, and soap before you or you eat, then that, that can't be a really good thing. So I suppose my first question to Andy would be is, is where do we start trying to address the problem?
2: Well, thanks, Neville. Firstly, I want to say congratulations to you uh, and all the team here for, for launching the podcast. This is exactly the conversation that we need to be having coming out of the pandemic because the truth of the matter is, inequality was getting worse, let's say from the 80s onwards, slowly getting worse and it's accelerated in the last decade. But then the pandemic has really uh, you know, brought it uh, right, right out there, isn't it? Just how unequal we are as a country, as you said. And I think to a degree you answered your own question, the basics. See, for me, I see this in my, in my role there are far too many of our fellow citizens who can't guarantee they've got the basics in any given day. And when I talk about that, obviously it's food, obviously it's warmth, um, but it's it's also just a a bed, a roof over, over your head. So I think the thing that I've noticed is over time, we've got to a situation where the basics aren't guaranteed for people anymore. Food banks have become permanent um, we have government MPs almost celebrating that that fact. And and the question for me is, if people are living in that way, as you say, choosing between basics, so they can't have all the basics, but they're kind of picking one over another, what does that do to people's mental health? Well, it destroys it, doesn't it? Because you can't live like that um, when you're worrying about whether you can afford the kids' school uniform, or you just can't, and, you know, and, and consequently... If you look at how demand for mental health services has grown over the years, that, that reflects the fact that there are far too many people in this country, and when I say that, I mention yeah, all, the, all the four home nations, as you said, they haven't got security over the basics on an ongoing basis, and that is what's got to change. Before you can level anything or anybody up, people have got
1: to have the basics. So, so from that point of view, you know when you get universal credit, how is that based because you know when you look at it what does it cost an average person to live for a month or a week did did the government or people that decide on a figure or did it just make it make the figure up because universal credit seems to be the 20 quid makes a massive difference one way or the other so so is there some scale they use to actually produce that number
2: no, I don't think so, Neville. I mean, I obviously was in Westminster and saw how things are done down there. It's arbitrary. Um, I think it's uh, often driven by the newspapers um, and all of that debate about strivers and skivers and all that horrible, divisive stuff that we that we saw. Um, but then you look at the way universal credit works and the way it makes people feel who are on it, it it's almost designed to trip people up rather than help them, isn't it? You know, it's kind of the the bureaucracy of it, the tick box box nature of it. And don't forget, millions of people on universal credit are in work. So that universal credit is topping up uh, low wages. Um, I mean, obviously we can think back to the film, I, Daniel Blake, I mean, you know, this sort of tick box computer says no approach to people's support where everyone's fearful they're gonna lose it at any given time really, really doesn't work, actually. It doesn't lead to public money being well spent. And I've come round to the view that what we need is a fundamentally different system, uh, universal basic income. You know, you you need a system where people have enough to cover the basics. And actually, if you you set people up to succeed rather than set people up to fail, I think universal credit sets people up to fail. If you set people up to succeed, I think you save public money in a whole range of other ways because people then don't spiral into crisis. So, universal basic income, I think, is an idea that this podcast might want to, uh, you know, to kick around over the next uh, few weeks and months, because I think that's a, a campaign we increasingly need to get behind.
1: Yeah. David, do you want to come in there,
3: or maybe not? <laughs> I know, One I know. second. Sorry about that. I was muted. Um, I believe having Austria just just trialed a similar system. And, and I think the Scandinavian countries too kind of work like that. It's not about a policy. The thing about universal credit and I've experienced universal credit is the very first thing they say to you is, this is not a benefit. Benefit suggests a gift. Credit suggests a debt. It's all in the semantics. Yeah. This is before you'd even sign the yeah. first form to say, I want to claim it. They explain this to you it's a different system, and yet a football ground, it's still repay your benefits when in fact it's not like that at all. Yeah. It's kind of a this is a work contract in lieu of work. Where, and therefore, it, there's, there's always a disciplinary aspect to it. In fact, it's 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 front and center in the whole system, to be fair, where a basic income is more a support, not I've never met anybody on universal credit who likes being on universal credit. So the attainment aspect, the the aspirational part of it, the the individual betterment aspect, element of it, that's removed because the stress and the fear and the just running to stand still thing, that that takes over because it consumes your whole being because it's, it's bad enough as a single parent a single person, but imagine being a a, a parent responsible for children under that system. That must just be, the the pressure must be crazy. So I agree with you. I think it's definitely time to look at it now.
2: I I think so, David, it's not a pie in the sky idea at all. And I think what you're saying is right, you know, the way in which universal credit was kind of created with the language, the divisive language around it, it's designed to make people feel guilty. And it's designed in some ways to reduce their self-esteem. And, you know, how in the end does that does that help actually? As I say, it sets people up to, to fail rather than than to succeed. And, you know, it's not all about it being public funds that pay for a universal basic income. Some of it has to be done through raising uh, wages at the, at the lower, lowest level. You know, a large part of it should be done. Why is the state subsidizing low pay. I mean, I, why? You know, we, we should be expecting much more of employers as they do in other in other countries. There's one example I'll give you, because, you know, we talk about other countries, but let me give you a concrete example from Greater Manchester, and you actually have it in the Liverpool City region as well, and it's a scheme called Housing First. It's about helping rough sleepers, actually, so it's targeted on, on rough sleepers, <clears throat> but it's a really different way of supporting people, because what Housing First does is it gives people a home for an unlimited period of time, without any deadlines about, you know, you've got to, by six months, you're gonna have to have done this and you, and Universal Credit does that, you know, always giving people these cliff edges that they're kind of, they get stressed about, and then they kind of are set up to fail again because of the the stress that comes from that. Housing First lifts people out of the benefit rules and just gives people space and time to recover. And believe it or not, it works. Well, we're not surprised, are we? But (laughs) when people have got the solid, Uh, base, foundation of a good home behind them and time to recover, because you do need to recover physically and mentally if you've been sleeping rough. Actually, people do. So 90% of people in Greater Manchester have have sustained their tenancy on housing first. And and that, I think, is almost the exact same figure in Liverpool as well. And it's telling us something. Set people up to succeed, and they will succeed. Set people up to fail, and no surprise, they, they will as well. So it's about a completely... Different way of thinking about the system, about how we support people.
4: Okay, Andy. Um, actually, I've got a couple of questions I would, I'd kind of like to ask as well. Which, uh, I mean, there's so much really in, in what's been discussed here in the first ten minutes that you could kind of jump in on. But what I'm, what I'm really interested in, as well is, as well in relationship to this, is the things that you've discussed there about definitions about. I'm really kind of interested. I think maybe some of the people watching this might be interested, or listening to this, might be interested. Dan in, is is how governments define poverty, and it can be quite different the way that's actually set up. And and, how, and obviously, with you being um, part of part a politician, and um, and I'm familiar with those processes. I mean, what are you aware of the processes that go that government goes through to actually define poverty uh, yeah. and, and establish the definitions? Because it can be quite different. Really, in the in the they're not necessarily flexible flexible in that kind of sense, you
2: know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Keith, it's a really important question, and the answer is there's two ways in which governments define poverty. There's absolute poverty and relative poverty. So absolute poverty is basically what Neville was saying before. You know, what's the minimum somebody needs to live on to cover <coughs> cover the basics, and how many people are below that line. And Governments tend to focus more on that one because it costs less to deal with absolute poverty than it does with relative poverty because relative poverty is linked to the the size of the gap in society, the gap between top and bottom. Because obviously, if people in one part of society are all having a life with certain benefits that other people can't have, that actually matters. So take this thing that we're doing right now, you know, digital inclusion. How many people in Liverpool and Manchester can't afford, not so much the device, because I think most people probably can access a digital device these days, but the connectivity. Now that isn't seen as an essential, is it? You know, if you're looking at absolute poverty, is it essential that people have connectivity? But I would say it is now because you're not in the room. You're not, you're not part of the conversation if you're not connected online. You can't connect opportunities for jobs or, or training. And that is a kind of reflection of relative poverty. But it always suits governments, Keith, to talk about absolute poverty, because it's cheaper to, um, to to deal with absolute poverty than it is to deal with relative poverty. And I think this is the thing that I would say kind of changed in the 80s. And sadly, the government I was in didn't 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 do enough to, to, to challenge. And that was this kind of idea that as long as you're doing a bit for the people bringing up the bottom, it doesn't matter what the gaps are above in society. And I would say it absolutely does matter. Um, and there's a very famous book that people watching this might, might be interesting called The Spirit Level. I don't know if people have heard of that book, um, but, but it's uh, you know, a fantastic um, academic um, expose of how inequality affects everybody you know, through crime and mental health. And, you know, we're all better off when we're more equal as a society is basically the, um, you know, the, the argument. And they completely demonstrate it. The UK and the U.S., are kind of massive outliers in having higher levels of inequality, and then higher levels of a range of social problems that come from that. And you, David, mentioned Scandinavia. Well, they're obviously at the other end of the other end of the of the scale. So, changing the conversation about poverty coming out of the pandemic is what I hope your podcast uh, can begin to do. And as I said to you at the start, well done for for bringing it on.
4: Yeah, I, I mean, no, that's already really interesting because I, 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 you know, in some of my research and some of the the uh, when we're actually looking at that, is that those particular definitions, and it don't seem to have really changed. If you're going back kind of the eighties, I for my, I I'm I'm of a certain age now, and so I can remember poverty in the eighties, nineties, nineties, and or and today, I and mean, I I don't feel that we've ever really kind of changed. It's always been there, and it's always it's become something that we've we just accept as a society exists, and that we need to deal with it. Almost like that, that if you're in poverty, it's the fault of the person who's in poverty as opposed to it's a, it's a consequence of the way we run society. So, you know, like, in terms of social mobility, then, I mean, for me, that's I don't know whether for yourself, but that's probably one route out of uh, poverty that I know social mobility has de- 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 decreased significantly over the last 10 years since this, this the government that we got in, in, in uh, well, our current government, you know. And in terms of, um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that and in terms of social mobility and how someone comes out of poverty, you know?
2: Yeah, again, fantastic question, Keith. Um, it's got back to what I was saying a moment ago about, you know, absolute and, and relative poverty. I've got a visitor here. Sorry about, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, say hello to the podcast, Axe. <laughs> yeah. Um, obviously, if you're talking about absolute poverty, you're just talking about, The basics, as I was saying to Neville, you know, food, roof, (laughs) warmth. You can't just confine it to that, can you? As I said, digital connectivity is a basic, I think, now. If you're going to get on in life or try to get on in life or be part of life, part of the conversation. But then you could link transport costs into that, Keith, as well. Because how do people find jobs if they can't afford to get around? And this is an issue I've been raising in Greater Manchester. Why is it the case... public transport in britain costs much more in the poorest parts of the country and it's because this myth of deregulation that came up in the 80s the idea and this is how bus deregulation was sold to the country oh competition will solve everything here there'll be more services they'll be competing with each other the prices will be going down the vehicles will get better yeah what's happened the precise reverse is what's happened um We've lost services to you know, more isolated areas. Fares have just gone up and up and up. It can cost over £4 for a single bus journey in Greater Manchester. And I think it's true in Liverpool as well. It's capped at £1.55 in London. You know, So these are the kind of things we need to talk about coming out of the pandemic. How do people get on in life, to answer your question about social mobility, if, in my part of the world, a kid in Rochdale or Oldham can't afford to get to Media City? How... how how do they get on in life? Or if you look more at not just local transport, think about national transport. How If you want to catch a train to London before 9.30 from Piccadilly, you, you're looking at a hell of a, of a number there in the hundreds. So if a kid from Greater Manchester gets a job interview in London at 10 o'clock in the morning, how do they actually get there at that cost? And so... Yeah, I think you, this is why relative poverty has got to be the conversation, not not absolute poverty. Because absolute poverty is almost saying, we don't care what the the gap above is. You know, that was kind of what some people you know used to say, even in, when I was in government. Well, you've got to care about the gap, because, you know, that that's uh, about everybody having, having a fair chance, isn't it? To take part yeah. in what everyone else is doing.
4: Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you there, Andy, as well, in terms of the, the relative poverty thing and the absolute poverty thing. I mean... Yeah, it's almost like a psychological trick that the media play on you as well, whereas we've got to focus on the, you know, the uh, all of the twist side of it. And uh, we're not actually focus on modern because it really means for when you're actually living in a modern society, you know, and, and and people are trying to get jobs and people are trying to, you know, utilize public transport. I think you make a great point about the public transport thing. You know, isn't it the fact that we we sold a lot of our public transports off or certain governments off to uh, to Germany and France and actually use, use the profits from our... From our public transport to subsidise
2: their own transport, it's, I mean. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if you go back to the debacle with Northern Rail, you know, that was uh, German owned, you know, and um, the the parent company. It's apologies. It's not. It's not. Oh, shut up. It's not just. Um, it's not just rail. You know, you could look at you know across utilities really, can't you, and, and see how we've been happy to to do that. Sorry about this. Some editing needed here, James, I think. but um, <laughs> I, I think we've got to get back to, Keith, what is essential that it has to work in the public interest and not the private interest? This idea that things can work in the private interest and they can still be publicly beneficial, I just think it's been disproved by 20, 30 years of deregulation. People, you know, 72, I think I've got the number right there, people wouldn't... Have died in Grenfell Tower. It's a terrible thing to say. But if, if there was proper standards of regulation of people's homes and the building of people's homes, what, you know, would that tragedy have, have happened? And, and these are the questions we've got to got to ask. where where has deregulation of essential services got us? It's not got us to a good place, has it? You know, people haven't got safe homes, they've not got affordable transport. You know, th- this is where we've ended up with some of the mantra and the myth that the market solves everything because that's all the political parties have said that to one degree or another in the last 20 30 years and yet it can solve things you know particularly in the world of communications or you know it, it can bring massive innovation uh, and you know we all benefit from that but when it comes to essential services that everybody needs like transport where every community needs to be properly served at a price people can afford the market has been proven not to be able to deliver that and hence something different is needed and that's why i've taken the decision to put buses back under public control in greater manchester for the first time in 35 years and i think steve rotherham's looking at something doing something similar
4: okay yeah. thanks for that i know comrade neville wants to come in now so i'm going to concede to my uh my my my, uh, my mate neville <laughs> no. yeah
2: my brothers my, my that dog you've just seen there nev my brother's got what we've got two Similar dogs, and his is called Neville. I just, I just leave that there. But um, <laughs> you, <laughs> well, your reach wouldn't... is still strong in the Burnham family. I can assure you.
1: <laughs> my, my thing is, is, is carbon footprint is because obviously we're going to have a carbon footprint or carbon passport. So living in Wales, and it's you know obviously this part of Manchester is really rural, is that when you travel, you'll be penalised for travel. So that's going to impact poverty. That's why connectivity, I think, is is vital to everybody. So yeah. so is there anybody looking uh, when the carbon footprint comes in or your carbon passport allowing you to travel only a certain distance? I mean, I do 600 miles a week. Now, I think in the future I'll get penalised for that. So the jobs may become closer to home. So connectivity will be a massive issue, I think. Is there, is there a government outlook on on the carbon footprint or carbon passport, how far you could be able to travel in the future? Well, again,
2: your questions are completely you know, on the money because this is something I'm agonizing about at the moment. So as we come out of this pandemic, getting to net zero is the big challenge, if you like, isn't it, ahead of, ahead of the country. But I think there are two paths to net zero, Neville. There's one that could make us more equal because some of the things you need to do to get there could actually solve some of the things that we're talking about. So, for instance, if you kind of get a hold of the public transport system, as we are trying to do in Greater Manchester, and you decarbonize it, you can also improve it and make it more affordable for people. Do you see what I mean? As you go towards um, a kind of major change in that direction, you can both decarbonize transport and make it cheaper uh, for people and prioritise it. Or, for instance, let's take um, people's homes. So if we're going to get to net zero, we're going to have to retrofit everybody's home to make it net zero. Um, and that's a massive undertaking for, for the country. But actually, by doing that, we could lift a lot of people out of fuel poverty because obviously the level of insulation that will go in, um, some of the you know, renewable heating systems got much cheaper to, 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 um, you know, to run your home when it's been retrofitted and all the thousands and thousands of jobs that might be created as part of a retrofitting program. So one route to net zero gets you to a more equal society. However, there is a big but coming here. If you don't fund it, and if you go back to that approach, all the market will solve this, and you leave the cost to fall on individuals to retrofit their home, or buy a a car that's cleaner than the, the, the one that you've got, Actually, you could get to net zero and be even more unequal. Do you see what I mean? Because it will hit the poorest hardest, some of those costs. And I've got a very live debate with this right now in Greater Manchester, where we're introducing a clean air zone. Well, we're required to reduce a clean air zone. I'm not saying it's the wrong thing to do, because we've got illegal levels of pollution from road traffic in all 10 Greater Manchester boroughs. But when we, when we were putting together the scheme, as the government asked us to do, surprise, surprise, the one thing they refused to do was fund a hardship scheme for people who were going to have the biggest challenge in changing their vehicle. It doesn't include cars, by the way. It includes people's vans. And obviously, they're often sole traders, self-employed. And I'm right in the midst right now of an argument with with the government uh, about this because we're not going to get to net zero if it's going to be resisted by people because they can't afford it, and particularly people on the lowest lowest incomes. And if we get this wrong now, I think we're going to be heading absolutely in the wrong, in the wrong direction. Because in effect, if we don't introduce the Greater onto clean air zone properly, it would have the effect that you just said. People would have to limit their journeys because they just, if your vehicle's compliant, you don't pay anything at all. But if you're poorer and you can't afford to change your vehicle, you're going to pay that daily charge. And that then could impact on your, you know, on your, your living standards. So what I'm saying is, again, the podcast might explore this. How do we make greener, fairer? And and stop the risk of greener becoming even more unequal where the middle classes buy their Teslas and all the rest of it, but other people are just hit by the charges and, and can't escape the charges of you know of a bigger carbon footprint.
1: My my only other question before everybody else jumps in is, is um there's one group of people who never get mentored on the news or anybody, or I've never heard any politicians talk about it. Is it during this pandemic? Sex workers must have had to go out to work. There is no way in the world that they cannot go out. But there was nothing done for them. Is there anything done in Manchester for them? Or do you have any schemes done for that? Because, you know, let's be honest, they're going to get as close as they can to their clients so the pandemic would have spread. But otherwise, how, how would you keep them out of poverty? Because if you're asking them to stop, there's no way in the world that anybody's going to fund any of their money.
2: We do have some amazing support services for sex workers in in Greater Manchester. Uh, an organisation called, I think I've got it right, Mash, um, related to people's sexual sexual health, um, and yeah, it, it does you know fantastic fantastic work for some of the most vulnerable uh, people in in society. And I think you know obviously sex workers is one example, but there's a whole range of other people, if you like, who are in that that economy who. I've never stopped working through the pandemic whose health has been absolutely um, at risk because of the nature of, of, of what they have to do on a, on a, on a daily basis. And the, um, you know, the evidence is that you know, if you look at some of those professions uh, that are the lowest wage, zero hours, you know, they, they've been really exposed because obviously we've got a situation here where sick pay isn't available to those, uh, to those people. Um, if they were ill, they've not been given support to self-isolate. So how do they self? How do you just take two weeks off when your income is not guaranteed? Um, and people ask, well, why, why? You know, last year or twenty twenty, why was the case rate highest in the north of England and some of the poorest communities? And they try to back to I think what David and Keith were saying before. They run an easy narrative about, oh, you know, it's all their fault. They're all out partying or this, that, and the other, and. You know, the truth of the matter is you've got large numbers of people in those communities that can't stop work even if they're ill i mean that's the that's the reality and that's you know a, a blunt truth that this podcast again needs to look at that the pandemic has revealed that millions of people in this country even outside of a pandemic can't stop working if they're ill and and that can't be good for them but it can't be good for anybody can it if, you, if you're infectious and you can't you've no choice but to go into work and this again this idea that we can Thrive as a society with the bottom third with no wage security, no no safety net if they're ill. No, it's it, it doesn't work for any doesn't work for them, doesn't work for anybody.
1: No. I suppose my only other last question before everybody else jumps in is, is is how do we change the perception that people on benefits are scroungers? How do how do we change that way of that the low paid and the low, you know, the the zero hours working are all scroungers and because that's a perception higher up, isn't it? That's a perception in government that the lower you down you go, the less people seem, seem to care about you and you're seen as something of a, as a lesser individual. So somewhere we've got to change that to give, like you say, give people hope, improve their mental health and make it not so much of a, a stigma to be on, on a benefit if you like. So for me, it's all about how, how we change the perception.
2: See, I think, again, a a reflection on my time in Westminster Neville, I I mean, in terms of how you change that, it's the newspapers have got a big part of this, haven't they? Particularly the tabloid newspapers, because they kind of run that narrative. And from my experience, too much there is too much influence of those newspapers in Whitehall in terms of then politicians positioning themselves in relation to that kind of media, uh, media obsession. And I include that on my own side as well. Remember when I um, kind of stood for the leadership of the Labour Party against against Jeremy Corbyn in 2015, there was a bill that the government brought forward, welfare reform bill. And it was all around that narrative. You know, the whole bill was constructed out of that narrative that that the government had run at the 2015 general election. And Labour being Labour, it kind of was like, oh, what do we do? We're going to, we can't, you know, it was this like, you know, sort of situation where they were saying, you know, we'll we'll be on the wrong side of this because the newspaper, you know, And it's a frustration to me because I, in the end, moved Labour to a kind of position of opposition, although quite half hearted opposition in that welfare reform uh, vote. And then Jeremy did just went for the opposite, like, bump, no, we're opposing that. And I understand why that kind of had a sort of an effect in the. But I was kind of, you know, in all my time in politics, I was kind of caught in that thing where Labour had timidity on these issues, you know, where they were kind of trying to. You know, rec- you know, not take on some of that narrative. If, if there are people kind of exploiting the system, it's you know how many is it actually? It, it's I would say less than five percent, possibly even lower than lower than that. You know, ninety-five percent of people are actually working hard and struggling like mad. The majority are in work. Whoever says that as politicians, you, know, you rarely hear a politician say loads of people on benefits are in work. You know how 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 is that um, justified? And I just think. It, You've got to come at it that way, I think, you know, I think the influence of the newspapers is, is slowly diminishing, you know, podcasts like this, social media, people are getting, people are having different conversations now and their hold on the public debate nationally, the newspapers is, is, is diminishing all of the time. And I think you've got to kind of take that opportunity to have a more, you know, kind of humane discussion about how you give everybody a solid foundation so that they can then make a success of themselves. And I think one of the things the pandemic revealed was, wasn't it, just how many people are out there working every single, working actually their fingers to the bone, actually. You know, Skype was absolutely not. In the poorest communities, you've got people out there every day doing really hard work for, for not a great deal. And, you know, this is a good chance to turn these narratives around now, isn't it? And, you know, yeah. absolutely critical that we take it. I
4: I think you're absolutely uh, right, Andy, you know, I I think you've got to kind of really spot on with the narrative being dictated by by certain sections of the media, and and whilst I agree the papers maybe not not have the influence that they used to have, but they're actually all on social media as well, so some of the narratives that they they post or or push can become like what we perceive as common beliefs, you know. I think you're making a really important point, and Dave made it earlier when we're talking about benefits, when we're talking about um, <clears throat> who receives benefits, you know, um, and we're talking about people who are in work that are on benefits. There's never very rarely a discussion takes place about the benefits that business is receiving in the, in the UK, you know, yeah. because basically, if you're, if, we're, if someone who's in employment is having to draw or, or, or draw upon, you know, government support in some kind of way, but then that really isn't the support necessarily. They're always the support of the individual. It's supporting the business. you know. Absolutely, so
2: we can- key. I mean, that's, the, the, that's about turning around the, the, the narrative on benefits, isn't it? You know, as I say, I think if there's 5%, I don't know how many people you could say, but why does the 5% of that dictate 100% of almost the public narrative about, you know, why, why aren't we talking about the 95% who are actually getting benefits, as you say, because their employers won't pay them enough to live on. You know, When did it become okay for employers to employ people without paying them enough to live on? Because that's, the, that's a reflection of, of, of that, isn't it? But I'm gonna kind of illustrate it in another way as well, through housing, the housing benefit element of universal credit. So we sold off the council homes in this country. Um, many of them now have ended up in the private rented sector, owned by people who don't live in the communities where those homes are. They, rent them out and uh, get handsomely paid uh, repeatedly through public funds, but they never put a penny back into the upkeep of those properties. Now, you can go around the northwest of England you can find many examples of that, of that situation where you've got poorly maintained private rented properties, absent landlords who you can't ever get hold of, don't invest in the safety of their homes so that people have a safe home to live in, But get huge amount of public money uh, as a as a result. So where that's benefits grounding, as far as I'm concerned, you know landlords that don't look after, don't pay uh, properly for the upkeep of their homes to a decent, safe standard, but take huge amounts of public public money. When are we going to get a stronger debate about that? No, I I absolutely agree
4: with it. It almost serves a government purpose, doesn't it? You know the. The fact that, you know, I've, I've I've reason to keep certain sections of society in poverty, because in itself, it's become like a bit of an industry, especially with the fact that, you know, certain, uh, when you think about landlords that are taking rents as benef- benefits as as, as as rent, and that when you subsidise subsidizing businesses, because they won't, they won't pay enough from wages. I know Simon, uh, um, uh, Simon Harty, um, he wants to jump in with some questions for you and that, but I think you're 100% right, you know, Simon?
3: Yeah, thanks, Keith. Hi, Andy. Um, just l- listening to what you were saying there about some of your your Westminster experiences and then the initiatives you've you've been able to introduce in Manchester. Is it fair, well? Is it right to maybe get a, an idea that it's easier to have a, a direct impact on people in your current role than than when you're an MP? Um, or is that is that have I got the wrong the wrong picture there?
2: No, you've got it absolutely right, Simon. I, I feel liberated in the current role from all of that nonsense that goes on in Westminster, you know, where kind of policies, critical policies that deal with support for people, social security, are kind of seen through that let that slightly twisted lens of everyone's a scrounger. You know? And actually, when you come to this level, and you just think about supporting people from the bottom up, it's actually kind of, you know, as I say, it's energising, quite liberating to, to do that, because you just... All of those agendas, you just—you don't have to—you know, you don't have to nod to them. At, you know, you just—they're gone. You know, and um, and actually, the support I've had on homelessness from the people of Greater Manchester has been unbelievable. You know, the generosity of people, the organisations that we've got involved in it, and it just—it becomes about you know, the practical support rather than the politics of all of that. All of that stuff. So, I think devolution of power out of Westminster into the hands of city regions is actually a really good, good way to go. Because when you build from the bottom up, I just think you do things very differently than if you're kind of constantly looking through this slightly twisted sort of thing that you're trying to signal something politically because you're going to go that way, not that way. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely would say that, um, you know, part of what we're doing, Steve and I and, you know, Tracy and Leeds and, you know, this is part of the solution as well, a, di- a different way of, of, of running things. Obviously, Mark Drakeford's doing a bit of that in Wales, and that's good good to see, and we're drawing on on, on some of that. But I would say even in Wales, you know, more power down to the very local level, because North Wales, I think sometimes, it's that alienation people feel from very top-down decision-making. And I think, you know, getting more power for people in terms of people so they can just solve things for themselves, it's got to be a big part of the way to go.
0: Thanks, Sandy. I just want to bring Mel Harvey in here now, if I can.
2: Hi, Mel.
5: Hi, Andy, are you okay?
2: Yeah, have you that all right?
5: He's very well, thank you. Well, yeah, you'd be a lot oh. bit better after. We had a very interesting conversation yesterday morning, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've, you've touched a, a lot on um, leaving Westminster, devolution, being in Manchester or Greater Manchester, try, trying to make the changes you have. One of the big pledges you've made on homelessness is, is something that we, we discussed a little bit. There was a big pledge. That, that you made when, when you when you first um, came in about bed for every night. Where, where are we up to with that now? Because I can see there's been good progress on that. How much more progress do you need to make on that in Greater Manchester? And how could you see that being rolled out uh, across the rest of the country, hopefully?
2: Yeah, thank, thanks, Well, I'm really encouraged by the progress that that we've made. Um, but not where we need to be yet, because I said we should end rough sleeping, and I stick by it, because... In this country, how can it be that anyone has to sleep on the streets? It sh- it shouldn't be, should it? Um, sadly, they do, and even in law, it's allowed. You know, in terms of people who are um, uh, fr- from overseas, you know, we have a, a, a policy nationally of no recourse to public funds, so we almost allow destitution in law. Um, and and obviously, we we're trying to deal with those with those things, but it's it's made great progress at bed every night. So I launched it about three years ago, we, we have to scratch around to fund it because it's not, you know, we've had to create a budget to fund it. And now, you know, I try to sort of lead by example. I put a bit of my own salary into it. And, you know, we, we raise funds um, in a whole range of different ways for it. But where is it now? It's looking after about 600 people every night. And while you could say that's, you know, success in one way, it's kind of not in another, is it? Because that, that's 600 people who were one step away from the street because it is obviously a, a basic Temporary emergency accommodation scheme. However, th- th- positively, um, w- you know, we have got numbers of sleeping rough now back into double figures for the first time in a decade. Um, and I believe, coming out of the pandemic, we we can we can achieve as close as you can anyway to get it to ending rough sleep. I think we can we can get there because the longer that bed every night is in place, the more it's just turning helping people turn lives around. And the thing is, Mel, I mentioned housing first before. A bed every night in Greater Manchester is operating on the housing first principle. So it's not just a bed every night, it's the same bed every night. So when people go into our scheme, they can stay in the same place every night. And that is critical to giving people the stability and the breathing space to recover. What stops people progressing when they've been sleeping rough is they're in one place one night and then in another place and it's a revolving door and it's like you never get any stability. But a bed every night is increasingly now single room provision. So it's you know higher quality rather than dormitory, uh, and it's that stable foundation for people uh, to help them move forward, and they are moving forward from a, from a bed every night. So really good progress to report, Mel, but not fully where we would want to be. Um, and you know I'm I'm hopeful that the number we've got now, people sleeping off 89, I'm I'm hoping that will go down again this year, and we're going to get to a, a point where we keep it you know we keep it really 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 low, if not eradicate it completely. And just to be fair, I mean, I don't want, you know, I, I'm one who's, you know, it's easy for me to criticise the government and I have done um, on this, uh, dis- in this discussion today, but before Christmas, I got a decision out of Michael Gove and Sajid Javid to fund Housing First for another two years. And I think they are personally quite committed to it, certainly Sajid is, because he created the Housing First Pilots. So I think it's really important to give credit where it's due and um, and, and actually then you know, kind of praise politicians on the other side that have said, okay, well, this, something different is needed. And, I, and then let him feel the success of Housing First. You know, this is a different way of supporting people. Well, Sajid Javid deserves credit for that. And it's working, therefore apply that principle more broadly now to a whole range of things. Um, if, if anything, I would say a bed every night and Housing First is it's not, how it is a housing policy, but it's more a health policy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the bricks and mortar is just the first thing. Actually, it's it's the space for health, to, physical and mental health to recover. It, you know, it's it's actually a, a great health policy, and I think as health secretary, he, you know, he could really take that principle forward. I, I think, uh, you know, the housing first principle, I think, should 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 be a national philosophy. In Finland, where they created housing first, that is what it is. It's not a project. It's a philosophy. Basically, like universal basic income in Finland. Particularly given their climate, they say if you've not got housing, solid, permanent housing, secure housing, you can't have anything in life. You know, you won't have good health. You won't. Your kids won't have a good education. You know, the state will have to pay for a whole can of other things. If you, you the crisis that comes from not having good housing costs a lot of money. And I'm really, you know, I want us as a country to make housing, safe housing, a human right in UK law. And I would like Housing First to be a national philosophy here like it is in Finland.
5: When you, I mean, I've seen um, some of the work that that you've been doing. I've seen coverage of it and I've seen you out and about talking to rough sleepers, um, particularly at the back of right back when you started this campaign, this um, Bed for Every Night. Have you... Kept in touch. I take it the scheme follows people through. I, I personally became very friendly with with a rough sleeper who who used to um, I used to meet outside the, the shops at the end of our roads. And I, I lost touch with them because he he moved on. As you say, it's that it's that move and gone, isn't it? And it, it's a great sadness to me that I lost touch with them. I did have a mobile phone before I mean, him. He obviously I think the phone was stolen. What's that follow through with people? Have you personally seen the development that that some rough sleepers have made when when they've... Because I think we talk, and when we're doing it today, we talk very much in generalities about rough sleepers, about sex workers, um, people on on universal credit. I I like to think about individuals and people that that I've met. Is there anybody that that you've met or the schemes kept in touch with?
2: Again, your questions, all of your questions today, just brilliant, and that's another one, uh, Mel. And it kind of touches, my answer is going to touch back on something Simon said before about the difference of working out of Westminster and Whitehall and doing the, the current job. When you're doing a job as a government minister, as I did, I, don't know, I was health secretary, you've got to deal in numbers, not names. You know what I mean? You're kind of peering out at the country with a telescope and you can't see names, can you? You, just, you can only see statistics. Whereas in this current job, I've always said to the team in Greater Manchester, we want to deal in names, not numbers. You know, that's the approach you've got. That is a, an approach that gets success, I think, when you look at individuals. Because the trauma of rough sleeping is actually a product of a, an earlier trauma often in life, you know, where people have suffered sexual abuse or they've been in you know, the care system, you know, lost their parents or that Yeah, but always, well, I'd say always, I would say, the vast majority of times there's a sort of a trauma way back when and you know and a whole range of adverse childhood experiences so you can't solve it unless you do a take a names not numbers approach because obviously the complexity of that means people need time to unpack and you know cope and de- deal with all of that and i think a bet every night is working because its it takes a names not numbers approach so yeah i do I, mean, I used to do a walk around pre-pandemic i've not been able to do it with the with the pandemic but you know, my um, me and my team do go out um around the city center, and I do uh, very much do it as a sort of names, not numbers approach. And I just remember one time it was at a match, I think it was at Old Trafford actually. I think um, I think we got I think it was we got a draw, I think, and it was the end of the game, and I was just like sort of you know clapping the players off, and there was a, a lad in a yellow jacket, you know, from I don't know what is it, Shosek or one of those, one of those things. And as I was walking down to you know, down the stand, he just said, "Do you mind if I just say something to you?" I said, "I said no, no problem." He said, "You spoke to me outside Kendalls when I was speaking rough, and um, I just wanted to say thanks because you know I got a bit of help through a bed every night, and I'm I'm back on the back on my feet." And it, honestly, absolutely the best thing <laughs> could have ever said to me, you know. And there's been a few other little examples like that, so that then fires you up for the next bit and you know what I mean and it's that those little conversations just that make you go right you know we, we've yeah. got to stick at this and yeah brilliant that was really brilliant.
5: Well I live and hope that my my homeless friends I don't see him anymore because I hope that he's moved on in life and 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 he's managed to to find a secure home and and, and help his future that's that keeps well, me going that really well, keeps me going.
2: Where are you Mel roughly are you in,
3: are you in
5: I'm in I'm in Thornby, and yeah. he used to get the he used to get. I used to give him a lift back to the train station, and is is um he used to get the train past Central, so he could bunk the train <laughs> I used to give him the train fare. I won't well, tell Steve to, about that.
2: Don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> no, please don't.
5: But he used to, he, you know, we I'd say, well, I'll pay your train fare, and he'd say, well, no, I'd rather you know use the money to. Yeah. He was he was basically trying to get enough money to get into a and B for the night because. Um, he found some of the homeless accommodation awkward yes. because he had an addiction problem, and he yeah. didn't. He wanted to try and remove himself from, from people with similar issues too, which I which I could understand. But um, he he was just such a lovely person, and and we formed a really nice friendship. And I do live in hope that the reason I don't see him anymore is because he's managed to move on in life. That's that kind of keeps me going. I think he probably both,
2: has. I hope so. Your Housing First scheme over, the, over there, Steve's obviously been overseeing that. It's, I say it's as successful as ours, you know, it's brilliant. And it gives people a home and time. Yeah. And it's, I say it's, you know, the podcast should take a look at Housing First because it's, you know, it's a really interesting example of how if you take people out, lift people out of the nonsense of the way the bureaucracy of public services kind of almost work against people. It, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a really shining example of how, how doing things differently is better. And it was ridiculous. About, yeah, sorry.
5: No, I was just going to say it was ridiculous because I tried to get him some help. He needed some dental treatments. And I was trying to sort that out for him one day. And it was this terrible cycle of him not having a phone at that point and him not having an address. And trying to just get him some, some dental treatment. It was it was yeah. unbelievably complicated. Um, luckily, he was able to use my phone and my number, and and it just made me think he can't even get a filling because he's not got a home and he's not got a phone. Well,
2: that's and it, he isn't it isn't a Because <laughs> <fill-in. laughs> a home guarantees you access to other things, doesn't it? You know, we had to do that in Greater Manchester. We we because we have a degree of devolution over the health service. We got an agreement early on that everyone with of no fixed abode could register with the GP. So we made a sort of local decision about that. Um, we worked with, it was Lloyds actually who helped us with this, the, the, the thing was about three or four years ago, that the, the, the banks claimed that they couldn't give people a bank account if they had no, no permanent address, and Lloyds, a friend of mine um, called Chris, Chris Whittle who works for Lloyds, uh, on Market Street in Manchester, he, he said, well, let's have a look at it, let's see if this is actually the case, and they kind of proved it wasn't the case, it was just sort of laziness on the part of the banks, and they got us, uh, you know, they launched a scheme for us uh, for bank accounts because then the bank account is a key, isn't it, to so, so many so many things. I mean, I think the thing about, you know, you say Formby and you, you know someone sleeping rough there, that's the change of the decade, wasn't it? People sleeping rough started to appear out of city centers in, in the smaller centers around, isn't it? And that shows what a kind of major societal problem it's, it's become. But there are grounds for hope. From Liverpool. There are. I know.
5: I hope, I hope all the time, whenever I think about him, that, that he's he's moved on successfully. You talk about the right for a home, you would like to see that become um, enshrined in law. I'm quite involved with the fan supporting food bank yeah. um, organisation here in Liverpool. And as you'll know, together with, with Ian Byrne MP, they are very much behind the right to food becoming enshrined in law. What what's your yeah. feeling about that movement?
2: Yeah, they've done a, a phenomenal job, haven't they? Uh, fans supporting food banks. It's um, to get everyone right. It's Dave Kelly as well has been heavily involved, hasn't he? And, um, and Ian, yeah, has, has done a, a brilliant job. And, and then broadening it into the right to food. I and mean, obviously that builds on everything that Marcus Rashford was uh, doing uh, here uh, over, over the pandemic. I, I think that's where this conversation goes, I think. you know, And again, it's back to where Neville started off. You know, in law, the basics being guaranteed, not an arbitrary level of benefit, you know, that that may or may not give you enough to live on. But every fellow citizen has the right to food, enough food every day, the right to uh, a roof over their head every single night. Um, So I would make housing a right in UK law, access to food a a right. Um, And then I think from those foundations, you can build a, a better a better society you know we've we've allowed ourselves to get to a point as i said before where lots of people today as we're speaking are worrying about those things aren't they where they'll be tonight or whether they can feed the kids today or whether they can keep warm and until you take that away it's a it, that's a sort of toxic stress that just destroys people's well-being and mental health isn't it and you know how can they succeed in those in those circumstances so um yeah i mean i you know could, couldn't agree with you more i think ian Dave and others have done a fantastic job uh, with that, and I just I think you know we're hard on football at times, aren't we? But actually, football continues to be actually a major part of the progressive call for change, doesn't it? Not just from support, supporters, but clubs. Our own club, you know, I'm really proud of what what's been achieved by Denise and you know everybody who's put the community scheme where it is and the right values at the heart of Everton Football Club. I mean, we can have our moans about what goes on the pitch, but we're I think we're, we've got a great heart off the pitch, haven't we? And, um, you know, some, it's a bit mad, isn't it, these days, that footballers are bigger voices than politicians. You know, I, I don't remember that in your day. I remember your voice being pretty big, Neville, in, the, in those <laughs> days. but I'm not, I don't remember many players of that time sort of... Is that a fair comment, Neville, that players now are kind of showing a kind of greater willingness to take on some of these big things?
1: Yeah, I, I think because the awareness has come out. I think, it, you know, in the 80s, I suppose everyone was just getting on with their lives. Yeah. It was an time for us. You concentrate on the next bit. You don't... I suppose it's like being in a pandemic. You live in a bubble. Yeah. You live within that club bubble. And obviously, the, the stuff that went off the pitch is nowhere near what they're doing now. So I, I, And also, I think the amount of money they make makes it easier to start yeah, yeah. foundations and things like that. I mean, one of the things I was going to ask, it you was <clears throat> you've mentioned mental health about 20, 30 times this morning. Yet, we never teach coping strategies in school. We never make businesses make it compulsory that businesses give coping strategies as part of their training days to businesses you know, to the employers. So, so what, it's a basic thing for me is that if you want to save money through the NHS and, 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 so, and social money and the police and everything, why aren't we teaching coping strategies in school and why aren't we making businesses give, you know, maybe through the mental health first aiders in, in work, giving that training to people. So at least they have some coping strategies. So what I find when I do a lot of work is that people push and push to try and find their own way. And I'm saying, well, if we can give them 10 or 15, 20 coping different strategies, then surely that's got to be better. So they have a range of things to try Because the way things work in mental health is that to get to somebody, to see somebody decent, you're talking maybe up to a year. You know, my foster kids was three years trying to get a a qualification to see if he was autistic or not. So I, I think if we can go through schools and start a primary school and maybe introduce coping skills through the school section, when they come out of school, they'll be miles better equipped to deal with life.
2: Yeah, 100%. And I think this is something that has kind of grown and grown, isn't it? You know, mental health has become, I've mentioned it 30 or so times, because I think it is the issue, the 21st century health issue for the reasons that we've been talking about today. The nature of people's lives means they can't have good mental health and well-being. And young people are under a level of pressure that, if we're honest, we didn't experience in the 80s, did we? Life wasn't great at times, but it was fairly secure. It's that kind of removal of security from people, I think, makes mental health the pandemic that we will be still with us after the, after the pandemic, if, if, if that makes sense, as you're saying. And I do think you then have to sort of take the approach that you're suggesting. We've had a, a pilot in Greater Manchester called Mentally Healthy Schools, where we put independent counselling in, in primary and secondary schools, actually. Um, you know, away from the teacher, so people could, kids could go and access a, you know, a bit of support, and it really worked uh, well. And you know, we're, we're looking at how we might, uh, might build on that. We've we've created some digital services for young people so that they can uh, just just use them one to one. You know, in terms of having a conversation at night if they're if they're if they're struggling. they they're in they're in high demand. I think the answer to your question, Neville, I would say is we need to first recognise the centrality of this issue to modern society and then think differently about how all public services and businesses and indeed all parts of society can have that open conversation about mental health you know i I was an mp where i remember for the very first time ever uh, another uh, mp said in the house of commons that they'd had mental health problems it was the first i think it was about 2013 it's the first time it it, had ever happened and to be honest with you the taboo around mental health has been one of the biggest, has not it, of, of, of all. Um, but I think it is changing, actually. I think it is, the, the, and you've helped massively with this through your Twitter account and some of the positions that you've been brave enough to take publicly. It is changing. People are feeling able to have a different conversation about their mental health. For me, the just a final point, the bigger answer is, I think we need to sort of consider this as sort of, a, as you say, not statutory services and long waiting time, You've almost got to have a support system in place for everyday mental health. So I would like to see social prescribing become a much bigger thing coming out of the pandemic. And what I mean by that is if you go to your GP, the first thing they offer you is not a prescription for antidepressants. It will be exercise referral or counselling or debt advice or whatever it is, the thing that is holding you you back. And that should be available to people as instant... as Constantly as medication, Do you see what I mean? Through a prescription. And, um, you know, we're, we're looking at a live well service in Greater Manchester, where we, we, we provide something of that kind through our voluntary sector um, in all of our in all of our communities. So, yeah, as ever, you know, you're absolutely right on it. And you were you were there before other people in talking publicly about this. But I do, I do think the debate has changed enough now to have a different conversation about mental health in a more positive way.
1: Yeah, well, let's, let's hope so. I, don't, I think Keith wants to jump in at the moment.
4: Uh, okay, thank you very much, uh, Nev and um, <clears throat> and Andy. And I think I think that the conversation's taken an interesting uh, kind of shape today. I mean, I, I was thinking, I was thinking before we um, started this today, and I know I was discussing it with Mel the other day about about when um, <clears throat> when the, the this current government came to power. I mean, um, David Cameron's big thing was the big society, as, as I, I kind of remember where. Basically, wanted to devolve all the responsibility of government to community. We've kind of arrived at that point. in my head where, in my mind, where, yes. where there's that much charity work going on, and, yeah. and there are that many food banks. Is this the big society? So, we kind of arrived at a point where we've 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 we're at that big society where we're all kind of looking at you to with each other because we're governments have just. Decided to abandon, you know, certain services and certain certain uh, support mechanisms in society for the people of society, and, and we've arrived at this point where Boris Johnson's talking about like things like leveling up, and no one really seems to know what that means. I mean, if you being a, a politician, what does that actually mean to you the concept and idea of leveling up from a, a government that you possibly accuse of not caring?
2: Yeah, it, it, you know, to, to what extent is you know. Was big society ever real? Well, it's kind of, as you say, it's kind of become real by the by the back door, isn't it? Not, not because of what they did, but what they didn't do. <laughs> they fought they forced us c- to create a big society. Um, That's it. which is kind of an interesting point, uh, which I haven't quite thought about in that way before. But you're right, Keith. We've got a big society in Greater Manchester. It's called the Great Manchester Homelessness Action Network, or our food security network. Uh, and you know, fans supporting food banks is the big society, but no no one in government has helped or sadly, to create those uh, create those things um and yeah i mean i i i i think we are in, in a position here where you know you've got government mp's standing outside food banks with you know a, a donation at christmas and thinking that you know is 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 a great thing i mean i yeah it's it's a staggering state of affairs really isn't it it's um, sickening
4: that, when, you, when I saw them pictures, I was just like, they've just got no concept whatsoever about how sickening that really looks, you know. <laughs> There's
2: a lack of uh, self-awareness there, I think, isn't there? But um, I think if you then look at it more positively, though, I guess it's always, always important to look at things positively. It It shows that if you do build from the bottom up, actually we can come up with better solutions than Whitehall comes up with. We are supporting people, aren't we, with what we're, what we're doing on homelessness and on food and other things. So actually, if governments funded that properly and you know, gave us some of the benefit budget, if you like, to do those things, I think we'd do a better job of it because it would be a names, not numbers approach, as Mel was saying, uh, saying before. And it would be more sympathetic. It would be more targeted. So you know, that infrastructure that we've got now, a decade on from the, you know, the, the Osborne austerity, Actually, if you funded that infrastructure to do its job, it would probably be, you know, it could do it better than the benefit system, I think is one one way of thinking about it. But you mentioned levelling up. I mean, it's all been described in terms of infrastructure, hasn't it, big infrastructure and HS2 and this this kind of stuff. But you can't level anything or anybody up until they've got that foundation of the basics. So that's that's what I think about levelling up. And just to take the conversation to a slightly broader territory but quite topical I've been talking about the scales of justice um, in the last few days following the ITV drama Anne and, and um, the documentary um, you know really Kevin Sampson's done an amazing thing there with the way he's described the, the human impact in, in in very vivid terms where people have to fight for justice uh, for their for their family um, and as, as Steve and I, Steve Rodham and I were trying to do on Friday when we brought forward this call for a you know, Hillsborough law now, you know, for every Anne Williams, there's thousands and thousands of other people walking an even lonelier road, actually, because, you know, they don't get the attention and they're battling the system, That kind of, where the odds are massively stacked against people. And this is part of how this country uh, is run. You know, when people are, families are bereaved in the circumstances uh, of the Hillsborough families or others, they go into courtrooms raw with grief and then they come up against public bodies who spend limitless amounts of public money hiring the best QCs in the land. And that is how false narratives get, get set. And that is why the truth isn't told at the first opportunity. And that is then what condemns people to this kind of absolutely um, all-consuming sort of uh, fight for, for, for justice. And the truth of the matter is, if you look at the the legal um, or the judicial system, class accent and social connections dictate what level of access to justice you will have or you won't have. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's just just completely and utterly wrong. And that's why it needs fundamental reform. If you look at one of those trials, the big one, let's say, that came out of the, um, the Hillsborough Inquest, the judge took a decision that the defendant shouldn't have to sit in the dock now if you're a kid from toxteth or moss side does that do you get that does someone make that kind of decision for you because there's no law about when you have to sit in the dock and when you don't and it's all discretion and you know I, i've watched it at close quarters the legal system complete can be completely played and, and includes in relation to money in relation to connections um and you know fundamentally It creates an unjust or or creates a country where there is unequal access to justice. And this is another part of change that we need to start talking about. And I hope through your work, you can champion a Hillsborough law now because, you know, I I can't see how we would ever get um, um, get that level playing field for people without a fundamental reform of the system.
4: No, I think you're 100% right, and um, I, I, I think, you know, the, the documentary we've all been watching over the last um, and last week uh, has been, you know, a significant impact, and I think you're right, Kevin's done a fantastic job, Kevin used to manage the farm, by the way, as well. Yeah,
2: yeah.
4: He's, um, he's always taken on
2: impossible jobs, isn't he? so <laughs>
4: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, he probably agree with you on that as well. <laughs> uh, but no, Is it his yeah, decision
2: no, to allow altogether now to be used for the 1995 FA Cup final.
4: <laughs> no, that was that was um, that was pizza, um, and I have got to be honest because in order to um, change the lyrics to a song, you have to get the agreement of the person who's written the lyrics and, and the writers. So basically, in the, so when Everton came to um, the band and asked for that. Um, it, it was put to the band, you know, and obviously me being an Evertonian, I was like, look, I've done loads for a few years as Liverpool fans. You know, I even played the last day at the cop for you, you know what I mean? Because you knew what it meant to you. Um, and to be fair to Peter and all that, it was considered. And then Peter asked his dad, who's a, who's a Liverpool, lifelong Liverpool fan, and sat in the cop all his life. He'd asked his dad, so what do you think? And his dad, who's, uh, again, as I said, like from a Liverpool fan, turned around and said, he said, you'd be a hypocrite if you didn't allow them considering yeah. what the song's about. The song's about unity, the song's about, it's an anti-war song, it's about peace, it's about bringing people together. So if you don't, you're a bit of a hypocrite. And uh, so Peter gave granted that, really, and
2: then he, the rest is history. He told me he still gets grief pretty much every match day <laughs> about it. He does. Yeah. Keith, tell me something, I want reassurance on this. You wouldn't have let them use a farm song, would you?
4: <laughs> um, oh, I'd, I'd have struggled. No <laughs> is the answer. <laughs> I, just I think James and I
2: remember that, year, don't we, James? Because we were at Bristol City away together, weren't we? And um, gosh sure we were yeah, we were at Lee, just... Ellen Road together, weren't we, as well? And yeah, uh,
0: yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of travelling, there was yeah. a lot of kind of um, yeah, there, there, it was it was all pretty intense, you know. It but really I I, do, I look back fondly on that time. I kind of Ipswich away, penultimate game of the season. I remember, I remember that one. one. We we'll stayed stay up, up and
2: win the cup was the yeah, chance. Yeah. if I remember uh, remember yeah. rightly. Incredible. But you were magnificent in that period, uh, Neville. Um final, but also in all of those in all of those games as well. I'm trying to remember did the that? Klinsman have to take that penalty twice at Ellen Road? I can't remember now, did it... Um I can't I, remember. Uh, I, I, I thought you'd saved it once. No,
1: no, he didn't. Did he... No, no, he put it right in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. I, I played that well, they tried to get rid of me to Wolves in a pre-season. <laughs> <laughs> Well, after, am...
2: after that year, you mean?
1: In the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. when I walked in, they said, yeah, you can go now out to Wolves. They want to talk to you. Would you say that final was your best performance in an FA Cup final? I think so. I suppose in an FA Cup final, yeah. yeah. I, I, to be fair, I thought it was pretty average. Your performance that day? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. Anyone else got any view, any view on that?
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I, I do... thought your, your performance was exceptional that <laughs> day.
2: What, <laughs> my game. memory is you and David Unsworth being exceptional that day is what I remember of that of that game.
1: Well, I just look, at, when I look it When I'm looking back, I go and and that's it. Don't go wow. I just go right. Okay, so I want, want to ask what, you a
2: question. What's it like to win an FA Cup for Everton at Wembley? What
1: What is that like? Honestly, it's it's great, but then I I don't like the other stuff around it, so. The lap of honour I found really difficult because yeah. I was like, well, I've done my job. I just want to go in now. And I've got to see. <laughs> I found that really embarrassing that people would clap you. I found that really embarrassing. I was just like, well, let's get round and get off so we can just <laughs> go back to what we've done. But, but it is, it's different from the outside because obviously when you're driving up in a coach, it suddenly hits you that you're you're carrying all these people's hopes and dreams. So it becomes it becomes more real as you the nearer you get to Wembley. And then when you see all the faces, you're going, Yeah, okay, I can understand this now. And then all of a sudden you get through the game and you go, I suppose it's a sense of excitement, but but relief that you haven't let all them people down as well. Because you you know what it's like when you go somewhere and you put yourself out there. Yeah. It's it's far easier to win than to lose at Wembley for sure. Well, I was when I was a kid,
2: I, I read a book and it was my favourite book for years. It was called Goalkeepers Are Different. And I think you've just proven that that is absolutely one of the truest statements of, of, of life. Give, <laughs> give, give, How can you not enjoy them. a lap of honor at Wembley forever? Because
1: but my thing was I expect to win and I expect to do well. Did you expect but to win that day though against United? Yeah, yeah, but I honestly never... See, everyone goes on, oh, you did this, to that. Yeah, well, in all fairness, he should have scored. To me, then, maybe the first save I should have done better. With so, and then when I caught the cross one-handed, it was only because somebody had crushed, got hold of my other hand that I couldn't use it. And it was, to be fair, it was a bigger surprise to me that the ball stuck in one hand that it didn't Tommy me than anybody else's. <laughs> So, for me, it was like, well, okay, everyone thinks that's great, but I've got away with that because he's got over my hand. <laughs> so, from your side of it, I suppose it looks really good. And my side of it, i gone, well, that's another one I got away with. It's <laughs> <laughs> so well, Thank me, God you did. Yeah, there's two sides to it, man. You're going up and then you realize what it's like. And then I, I do think people get really tired really quickly afterwards because of the excitement of the day. And, you know, let's be honest, you've gone there for your dream day, same as us. And it's nice to share that with the people. But once I've done, it's oh, let's get in, let's get in, get out of the way, get your medal. I'm
5: waiting around for the medal, oh, It
1: was a nightmare? <laughs> just get yes. it, let's go.
5: Neville, can I ask? Have you have you watched it back? Have you would you sit and watch that just to scrutinise yourself? Can you watch it and enjoy a game that you've played in? Because I know somebody else who can't watch a game he's played in and enjoy it.
1: Do you know what I did? I, what I watched it once. No, not, not that I think of but I watched some at once. And I come away feeling so disappointed. I thought, no, I'm never. So I never watched much of the day. When I, after about the first season I played, I never watched much of the day or any of the football. It, I never watched our games. And I didn't, and I hated it. And your dad would probably bear this in mind. But we went on a Monday and he showed the games ago and going, yeah, but I was there. I know what happened. You don't need me to show me that I made a mistake because I know <laughs> I don't need a rerun. And if you're talking about mental health, here's a negative Saturday, here's a double negative Monday because you just told me how bad I was on Saturday. So you've killed me twice. Thanks. So I hated watching any of that. I, I think because I don't do authority that well and I don't do, I don't like being restrained that much. I just like to do my own stuff. And if people left me alone like your dad did, I was all right.
3: So, I, so now I can
2: he's... prove to everybody on this podcast and everyone who's listening to it that what you've just said is, is absolutely real because the room I'm sitting in now talking to you from, I've got an award that was meant to be given to you, um, but you refused to turn up. It was from the National <laughs> Football Museum. Do you remember this when oh, they inducted yeah. you into the Hall of Fame? And you just said I'm not interested, I've not going. <laughs> and I've I've got this thing like when am I ever gonna get the chance to give this to Neville? But you know, you clearly don't want it, do you? So I'm I'm quite happy. Uh, you keep it, like you
1: don't use it. it. But yeah, you keep it. I am not interested. I can't but because not people it's in the know what. Me,
3: yeah.
1: It's like you, right? You will be, you will leave behind things that you've done on record, and that's enough for me. People know what I've done, know what I've been done for people, or done for the club, and that's enough. I don't need no statue. I don't need no medal. I don't need anything like that because I know in my own mind that. The biggest thing for me is that... Well, I, think career, we should, I think we should get you on, but I'm not sure we could afford the bronze, to be honest. <laughs> well, to be fair, let's be, let's be honest, it'd just be full of pigeon poo anyway after 10 minutes. So what's the point? I, I just think that the biggest thing for me that that is the best thing about my career is that I was accepted by the Evertonians because... Lo- no, it, more, loved. Well, the, n- nobody fools a scouser, do they? No. Nope. So if you're a fraud, they don't like you. And you can see over the years that the people they like are the people that graft and give everything they got. Well, and I've been what... talking
2: about security in this podcast today. I think I've said to you before, following Everton home and away in the 80s and everyone else who did that on this podcast, because they all did, will tell me I'm right about this. You gave us good security when you when we saw you coming towards the, the goal. Our mental health improved immediately when you were there, when you were there like a kind of rock in that you know, anyway but yeah you were loved more than accepted and uh, always will be mate thank you you can have that what tr- you've done since I think inspires a lot of people you know the fact that you do speak out in the way that you that you do you've reached obviously we knew about you but I think you've reached a lot more people in recent times as well with some of the, you know, the positions you, you, you're prepared to take an unfashionable or an unpopular position aren't you to change the debate and it's kind of to your great credit Neville that you do that
1: I've got one question for you If there was a politician uh, that's dead, that would you like to be alive now, who would it be? Uh, night Bevan, I'll say
2: it off the bat, you know, like immediately. Um, I've read up about him a lot. Obviously, he's from your part of the world-ish, somewhere somewhere down there. Yeah, I mean, I think what he did has had more impact than probably any politician, I think. You know, the creation of the National Health Service Mm -hmm. is the single biggest political act of modern British history isn't it and Mm. the fact that it commands full support should say to us that those type of policies are doable and you know I I can't think of it there's nothing else in British life that for me kind of speaks to what we should be about in the National Health Service and you know yeah Nye Bevan absolutely I, I would I would say without you know, without hesitation, is, is, and and I think this is what what went wrong really with politics. Certainly in my era, where it became more about, if you like, professional politicians, sound bites, um, the kind of culture, the media culture that I was talking about before. My party and the others, they lost the ability to think very big, and bring out a very big, big reform to benefit all people, and and they've started dealing in much more you know, somebody wants to call them pea shooter policies, you know, little itty bitty things designed just to sort of get a media attention, but not actually to make change. I tried to reform social care as health secretary and create a national care service. And I, you know, I couldn't persuade uh, my party to to do it, you know, free. I think we should have social care in this country on the same basis as, as NHS care. Everyone contributes, everyone's covered, free at the point of use. And it was instructive to me that I couldn't persuade the party that created the NHS to back the National Care Service. Now, maybe it can still be persuaded, but I do think there is something about politicians have lost the art of bringing through very big, major change that can have durable, lasting impact. and. You know, the NHS almost is the exception, isn't it? It's, the, it's yeah. the thing that kind of stands, speaks to a different set of values, pretty much every, everything else, actually, that that, that, that that we've got. But it's the most loved thing about our country, and so that should tell us, should give us some encouragement,
1: shouldn't it? Should do. But I think I'm going to hand you back to James now, I think.
0: All right, Andy, listen, thank you so much for your time today. We've oh, you're uh, welcome, James. Really, level
2: really down a, a bit of a, a cul-de-sac <laughs> there with <laughs> reminiscences of 1995.
0: Honestly, we could have listened to you interviewing Neville all day. It's like I'm finding <laughs> stuff out here. So I've known you for years and I've known Neville for a little bit of time. So, no, this is great. So, listen, thank you so much for your time today. You're you know, Congrats good luck with everything awesome. as, as the year progresses. Thank so thank you to Andy Burnham. Thank you to Neville Southall. Thank you to the members of our podcast team, Keith Mullen, Mel Harvey, Dave Feely, Simon Hart. I'm James Rogers. I'm the host of 90 Minutes with Neville Southall. Thank you all for listening to us today and look out for our next episode.